We have a very important guest with us. Would you please state your name and your profession? My name is Tinti Sejer and I work on Youth Development Affairs at the Office of Tibet in New York City. Having this Tibetan Youth Conference, who came up with the idea and what made you guys think that we should have this? The conference was something I had written on like a notepad earlier because part of my job is to brainstorm different ideas to sort of reach out to Tibetan youth in North America. The conference is just one idea. When we had the conference in mind, we invited several advisors to help us develop it further. Let me just elaborate on the advisory board. At our office, myself and Tom Penzola, we do all the youth development work anything that's related to youth. Tala has a big passion in that. He sort of leads the way. We feel that it's very essential to reach out to youth here because it's a circumstance that we haven't faced before. I mean, before for thousands of years we were in our own country, but then we had to leave. And for the past 50 or so years we've been in India and Nepal, but now within about the last 10 years, a couple thousand of us have immigrated to the United States and Canada. And now the challenge for us is to in addition to taking advantage of western education basically modern education retaining our own culture and sense of being Tibetan so this conference was exactly that it addressed how you be a mindful Tibetan some of the sessions we had included inviting speakers who had connected themselves with Tibet so people who had gone there to study or to work or to do volunteer work and showing students that there is a way to connect back to Tibet because we feel that understanding Tibet is incredibly crucial to helping our cause go further because if we are rooted in reality then we understand how to better equip ourselves as well as how to uh help the Tibetan cause. It was very exciting to see and meet some of those great speakers such as Bob Thurman. How did you get about getting those people to come to the conference today? Most of the speakers except for one we've had a relationship so most of them had a sort of an in-depth knowledge of Tibet and the situation they were more than willing to help address a group of Tibetan university students because they felt as we did the importance of it basically we just asked them and all of them agreed so it wasn't as if we were hounding them you know begging them it was not that difficult what other youth event have you guys held and for future uh, what other events are you guys planning on holding for the other younger youth that might want to get involved who have missed this conference Well the programs that we have done include summer camps. So um last year as well as this year we helped organize a summer camp for Tibetan high school students in Indiana. Also this year we helped the Portland Tibetan Association in Oregon and Southern Washington hold this summer camp for sort of younger Tibetans not high school going but elementary and junior high. But this year they asked us to collaborate with them so I was sent in addition to a music teacher. Basically it was an introduction to Tibetan culture. and then there was also you know playtime and you know the usual things that you do in the summer some of the things that we plan to do in the future include uh we've already started a directory for Tibetan university students so we were able to contact lots of students and so far we have about 600 university students on our list most of which are undergraduates i would say about 550 about our undergraduates and the rest are graduates and phd students and we're also planning to develop a mentorship program where young people who are interested in a particular profession or want to go to university don't know how they can connect themselves with a Tibetan professional who can guide them and give them advice and share their own experience All right, and my last question is today being the last conference, what was the feel of the audience here and what was the expectation before having the conference and now after? The students were very receptive. 
I think it was well planned that we had His Holiness give the concluding address because in the beginning it was about training yourself and uh, learning how to equip yourself with the necessary tools to have a successful career as well as to be mindful Tibetan. And then uh, with His Holiness's address in the end, kind of drawing all of that in, I think students were very inspired. And I did see a number of people with teardrops. And I think people realized the important role that we all have. It's not so much a burden, but I think it's a privilege that we have. I know sometimes it can be, I guess, sort of sad sometimes where you, when you don't see your own country on a map or where people don't know where you're from. We have a formidable task ahead, and it's a big challenge, but with challenges, whenever you overcome them, the reward is so big. So I think that if we are able to take this challenge and go with it, I think that the rewards will be very big. <laughs> Thank you so much, Seldano, for giving a little time for us and for the Tibetan Radio in Wisconsin. Thank you so much, and uh, I'd encourage uh, Tibetan youth to contact us, and I'm sure I'll somehow contact all of you if I can. Thanks. As Tenzin Seldon mentioned, there were many inspiring and experienced speakers at the conference. We got a chance to interview speaker Robert Thurman, a famed Buddhist studies professor who non-Buddhists would recognize because he is the father of Hollywood actress Uma Thurman. Today here, I'm honored to have Mr. Robert Thurman. Um, could you please actually first introduce yourself and your profession? Yes, I'm uh, Robert Thurman and I'm a professor of uh, Buddhist studies at Columbia University in the Department of Religion and also I'm the, one of the co-founders of Tibet House U.S., which is in New York City. Partner with the Tibet House New Delhi and other Tibet houses around the world preserving Tibetan culture. Thank you so much. Uh, what is your purpose of being here today at this conference and what would you like to accomplish? I was invited by the organizers to um, give a keynote talk relating to the young Tibetan students uh, who gathered here from around the country. My talk was entitled Challenges and Opportunities in Living as a Refugee in Diaspora and in choosing your profession. What I hope to accomplish was to, to emphasize with the young Tibetans the importance of um, preserving their culture and actually making it grow due to the diaspora situation. Preserving it means remembering that the Tibetan people, uh, although they have suffered so badly with the Chinese invasion and occupation and the ongoing genocide, of uh, the Chinese trying to colonize Tibet, then uh, still they have something very precious in their Tibetan culture. And actually, I didn't say one of my slogans that I often say, and in my talk I didn't actually mention it, but it is my belief that when we do achieve world peace sometime in this century, since we must in this century, uh, I mean, a better level of world peace than we have now, because we have many wars going on around the world. We will see those nations, and during the era of colonialism, from about four or five hundred years ago, uh, with the colonization of the Americas and the European invasions of Asia and Africa, we will see that the people who were conquered mostly as superior to the ones who conquered them. Nowadays, people think of, well, if the British conquered any, that means the British are superior, because we're in a militaristic model of life now. And so, therefore, the Chinese conquered Tibet, and Tibetans somewhere in their mind, maybe they think they have something wrong with them because they were conquered by 
this country that is like a billion people, you know, and there's only six million Tibetans. But then they shouldn't think that, but they have the tendency to think that. Whereas actually, I think the people who are more gentle and more civilized and more friendly and kind are actually the superior ones. And the bullies are the backward ones who do the conquering, even though they have more machinery. I, that my personal belief, but I didn't mention that today. But anyway, <laughs> I believe that it's therefore in the education of these Tibetans, young Tibetans such as yourself, it's very, very important that they learn about Tibet very thoroughly from a young age, and they realize that in a way, among whatever other career they choose, they are professional Tibetans. And I also liken the situation of Tibetans in diaspora to the Jews who have been in diaspora for about 2,000 years, ever since the Romans kicked them out of Israel, and they haven't had their own country until the last 50 years. And the Jews, although they were in diaspora, they did suffer terribly now and then, with major killings and slaughters and terrible troubles. And yet, they maintained a very high level of education, very high level of personal competence and, and wisdom, made a huge contribution to the world, and currently are a very powerful community. Like the Tibetans, they suffer the challenges of being a diaspora community, not having their homeland. And yet, by rising to that and turning a disadvantage or a dangerous situation into an opportunity, they excel, actually, compared to people who sort of live routinely and don't think about what they're doing. They have excelled over many centuries. The Tibetan situation has many things different about it, and it's a shorter period of time. And I'm sure it will be a shorter period of time before the Tibetan homeland is recovered for the Tibetans in some form, perhaps in association with China as an autonomous, truly autonomous region, not a fake autonomous region, any longer. So I hope to make this point with the young Tibetans. And then there's one new element which I was introduced, which is that they are lay people, and they will have secular careers and families, probably most likely most of them, and few of them will become monks or nuns. And, and in the old Tibetan society, really the kind of level of understanding about Buddhism, not just faith in Buddhism, but understanding about Buddhism, which is the core of Tibetan culture, uh, was left to the monks and nuns. And the lay people didn't really bother their heads with it. And uh, they would go even go and ask a monk or a nun, and they wouldn't even tell them. They'd say, well, you'd be a monk if you want to study the deeper philosophical and scientific teachings of Buddhism. But now, since the, in diaspora, they're in these countries where there's a theory of universal education and they read philosophies and they learn science, Western materialist science, it's very important that they develop curriculums and actually it's up to the monks and nuns to also to develop these curricula, or maybe working with Westerners or whatever, that make it possible for these young lay people to learn their Buddhism so that they can understand it in, a, in an intellectual way and not just to have faith. I mean, it's good that they have faith and they're respectful to their elders and to the lamas and that. And that. They have to add that as a new growth element of Tibetan culture that can be an opportunity of the shattered situation, which is that the lay people can actually really understand the philosophy and the science, really, of Buddhism, rather than only believe in the religion. And that will help them enormously. That will help them make contributions to the people in other societies with other religions who will then realize the contribution Buddhism can make without changing religion, in other words, as a philosophy or as a science or as an ethical thing. Because the point is not to make people Buddhist, but is to use the resources of Buddhism to help them develop their lives better. And all the Tibetans can do that if they understand it. You know, people they work with in businesses or people they relate to in, in schools or in other ways, they can become a very helpful presence to them. And so that, I was hoping to accomplish getting that point across to the young Tibetans. It grows from my experience, 
as a professor now of about 30, 40 years, of having had some Tibetan students who were young lay people, some who took some classes with me about Tibetan Buddhism, sort of in an English way, like the way a Westerner would take that class, and then reading subjects and understanding subjects that they would not have been exposed to in a normal Tibetan society, because they wouldn't have been a Kamageshala, they wouldn't have done Geshe studies, type yeah. of thing. But yet they could understand them to a certain degree intellectually, learning them in the English language and reading them like philosophy, like they might read Plato or Kant or Hegel or something. And I noticed that this was very helpful to them and gave them the ability to develop a certain pride in their being Tibetan and to defend their worldview to their fellow students and later in life as they grow up to their colleagues in businesses. So based on that experience, I'm sure that there has to be this change for the young lay people in the diaspora community. So I wanted to get that, those points across. How do you know so much about Tibet? And if you could tell me the experience that you had learning about Tibet. Well, your friend Sherpa Tukul was one of my teachers, although he was very young at the time. His teacher was one of my teachers. I was his English teacher at a little monastery in New Jersey early on in 1962 and three when he first came to America as a young Tulko. My experience about Tibet at that point in life was dissatisfied with my American education at Harvard and so on. I thought Western philosophy was interesting, but I thought there were some problems. So I was looking for other philosophies. You know, I was reaching out and toward India, actually. So I took a leave of absence from Harvard and I went to India. And I met different Indian teachers and Muslim Sufis and Christian teachers in Greece, monks, you know, mystics and things. And I liked a lot of them and learned things from them, but didn't really grab my attention. But when I met the Tibetans and I started encountering the teachings of Nagarjuna, the great philosopher Nagarjuna, the emptiness philosophy, and also his ethical philosophies and a lot of things, it really held my attention. I felt, oh, this is what I've been wanting to study. And then just in general, uh, the Tibetan alphabet, even, I always like to say to people when they ask me, how come this? I always compare the Tibetan alphabet with the English alphabet. And the English alphabet, A, B, C, is the most illogical possible organization of letters. And it, like vowels and consonants and different kinds of consonants all mixed up. And I, I realized I had always been seeing it as like a kind of disorganized and no unrational thing. And the Tibetan alphabet is very, very rational as far as language organization goes, you know, kakaganga, cha 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 etc. And the difference between a yang yig, you know, and a selje, you know, a consonant and a vowel. So it was like a sanity. It was like a city of sanity going into the Tibetan alphabet. And I learned to speak it very quickly. Sherpa Rinpoche can testify to that. In fact, I was a pest talking so much uh, and arguing with all the geisha, with the geisha and everything because I was quick-minded. And uh, I just loved it, and I just wanted to be, just live that uh, language and live that life. I, I became a monk, etc. To me, it was like a homecoming almost. Probably evidence, I would say, although I don't have necessarily very vivid, specific memories, uh, little, just little hints by now in the older age. At that time, I had no such memories. But probably because I had had some association with Tibet in a previous life. Maybe I was a Mongolian or something. <laughs> I studied Tibetan. I don't know. But uh, probably had some kind of association in a previous life. Kind of quickly. Very quickly, yes. And, uh, and uh, took to it, and I've been uh, very satisfied with my continuing study of it over the next uh, 45 years. I heard you have a special nickname. Oh, well, my nickname is just what my name was as a monk. Uh, His Holiness gave me the name Tenzin Chodak. And um, so Tenzin has stuck with me as a nickname, something like that. Oh, you mean some other nickname? or? Oh, oh no, no, that's not my nickname. I, uh, the chair that I, I sit in, the academic chair in, in Columbia, uh, we raised money and then the donor didn't want to use their personal name 
And uh, they initially actually had wanted to use the name of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama chair, call it a Dalai Lama chair. But the, some trustees of Columbia, maybe some Chinese people, were a little nervous about it. So then we picked a name that was um, classical, like the Leonardo da Vinci of Tibet, sort of, which was uh, Lama Tsongkhapa. And so it was called the Tsongkhapa chair. So some Tibetan lamas teased me that I'm sitting in the Tsongkhapa chair. But uh, which newly created, but uh, it just it doesn't mean anything great about me. It just means that what an endowed chair means in an American university is that when I retire, which will be fairly soon, I'm 66, when I do retire, then someone has to be appointed who is a specialist in Tibetan Buddhism. So that's a good thing. In other words, they can't appoint someone in another kind of Buddhism or in Hinduism or Jainism or something. They have to appoint someone who studies that field. So that means that that will continue to be taught at the university. That was the point of raising an endowment for the chair. And we've raised a few other endowments. There's one at Harvard now, Columbia, University of California, Santa Barbara. There's three in the United States. And we're working on one in Emory and some other universities. So Tibetan studies will remain alive in America. That's our hope. There's another one being worked on in Berkeley. So do you believe in Tibetan Buddhism as a religion or a philosophical? Yeah, well, well, as a religion, too, I have come to it. But that was not the way I came to it. And it also depends on how you define religion. But yes, certainly I have to believe and accept Tibetan Buddhism as a religion, if I say I'm religious. I'm just not that religious as a person. I'm sort of lazy type. Well, Mr. Thurman, thank you so much for being here with us and sharing so much about yourself. If there was last message that you want to say to Tibetan community or Tibetan youth today around the world, what would that be? Uh, well, my last message would be not to give up hope. Um, that uh, I think maybe some people think that His Holiness, in saying that he th believes things will turn around for the better, and a few other people who do, I always do, are not just uh, whistling in the dark, whistling past the cemetery, as they say in America, and it's like the great lost cause, you know, and China will never be relent on Tibet, Tibet is doomed and finished and blah, blah, blah. And a lot of people think that's worldly wisdom, and they say that. And I do not believe that, and uh, there are various reasons why I do not. A really keen analysis of the industrial militaristic system on the planet will say that it actually cannot last for very long. And as soon as it cannot last, then it is impractical for China to try to remain on top of Tibet. And because of the altitude, their colonization program will fail, no matter how much money they spend on it, so they're wasting their money. The train will simply be a nice convenience for Tibetans to take a train down when they want to go shopping in Beijing, or when His Holiness uh, or another Tibetan Lama wants to go and give a teaching in Beijing. They can take a train if they don't feel like taking an airplane. And so um, Tibet will again be free in some way. It could be free within a genuinely democratic Chinese uh, republic as an autonomous region. Chinese people will not be living there because it's too high an altitude for them. And Tibetans will be thriving and developing its economy. It'll be a great tourist economy run by the Tibetans, a health economy, medical economy. I think it'll become famous Tibetan medicine in the world. So it's very important for young Tibetans while getting Western education and learning to survive in Western societies and to thrive and to contribute, that they learn a lot about Tibet and especially Buddhism, and then they can make a big contribution and their children can make a big contribution when Tibet is a participating country in the world global economy, which it will be in some form, like a Switzerland of Asia, that's the hope, you know whether affiliated with the Chinese uh, United States of East Asia, let's call it, as it might be called in those days, in the future, and affiliated certainly with the United States of South Asia as well. It's sort of the way it sits in the middle, you know, and not to mention being connected with the good old Mongolians and the Iranians on the other side of Tibet, what's in the middle of those four, 
for streams, okay? So not to lose hope and to gear their career toward the expectation that they, younger people especially, will definitely have something to do with either a free or a truly autonomous Tibet. Mr. Robert Thurman, thank you so much for being here with us. My pleasure, Dragon. As amazing as this conference sounds, was it successful? We hear now from a medicine student who attended the conference last weekend. What made you attend this conference? Well, first of all, Hundun was going to be there. And second of all, I wanted to network and meet new people and see what the Tibetan youth was up to. And third, I've never been to New York before, so I I'd go there. So you're a student. How were you able to come up with this money? I'm a part-time student, so I also have a part-time job, so that helps me pay for the trip. But also my parents wanted me to go and told me to go, and they put in some of the money for it, too. How did you feel about the conference? Well, I thought the conference was great. Since we learned a lot of things about all the keynote speakers were talking about how we could do better and how we could help the Tibetan community. And they were very inspirational and like, motivating all the college students. So did you meet anybody new or any childhood friends that you want to talk about? One of the organizers, uh, Tenzin Selvin, she was one of my childhood friends and I got to meet her for the first time in like years. And I met a lot of new friends from uh, Massachusetts, uh, Toronto, and uh, Boston, and some from Minnesota also. So how are you able to keep a connect with all these friends from all over the United States then? Well, it's networking, website called Facebook, and find everybody in MySpace and phone numbers. From all the keynote speakers, did you have a favorite one that you really liked? Um, I liked Robert Thurman since he talked about Buddhism a lot and went into detail about talking about the Four Noble Truths and Buddhism is one-third ethics, one-third science, and one-third meditative and conditioning the mind. Since I'm a Buddhist, but I don't really know much about Buddhism, I learned a lot from him. So it's a great way for Tibetans out there that are Buddhist and are not able to understand Tibetan Buddhism in Tibetan language might be yeah. helpful from yeah, this. That's treatment, true. Right? So I see that the main goal of this conference is becoming a mindful Tibetan and also to network. Did you feel like you accomplished that? Um, I think so. It got me thinking after the keynote speakers were done talking, like what kind of career I could have to help the Tibetan cause in the future and what I should be doing in college and what I should be accomplishing. That's good. All right, and my last kind of quirky question is, I looked at the statistics and it seems that about more than 65%, roughly 65% are female and 35% is male. Did you feel like you met a new friend, a female friend? What exactly do you mean by female <laughs> friend? So I'm just saying there's a more of a chance to meet a female friend than a guy friend. Well, since I already have a girlfriend, I didn't really go for a female friend. Okay, that's, that answers my question. Thank you, Tenzin. Thank you. That was Kunar telling us about his experiences last weekend at the North American Tibetan University Students Conference in New York City.